When I say the words Yeti footprint photograph, there's a particular photo that probably comes to mind. It's black and white, a close-up of a footprint in snow. The print itself is striking, roughly human-shaped but huge, broad and long, with a pickaxe next to it for scale, showing that it is far bigger than any human print could ever be. There are either four or five toes, depending on who is doing the interpreting, but there's no mistaking the divergent right side toe. It's a massive, almost circular shape, somehow utterly inhuman and reminiscent of some sort of ape. The entire print is clean, crisp, and impresses the viewer with the unmistakable feeling that something made this print. Some real animal. Without a doubt, it's one of the most famous images in all of cryptozoology, up there with the 1934 surgeon's photo of the Loch Ness Monster reaching a plesiosaur-like head out of the depths, and frame 352 of the 1967 Patterson-Gimlin film, you know, the one where Bigfoot is caught in mid-stride, looking at the camera. It's that famous. But this Yeti photograph, the 1951 Eric Shipton photograph, is in fact not the subject of this episode. For though Shipton's picture gave the Yeti worldwide fame and set legions of monster hunters trekking across the Himalayas, three decades prior, an earlier mountain monster flap first made the Yeti known in the West and gave him the more sensational name by which he was to be long known, the Abominable Snowman. What's more, the man behind this earlier footprint story was an Anglo-Irish explorer who lived a rather extraordinary life, lived in two haunted castles, and owned the only Tian Shan white-clawed bear ever known to have lived in Mullingar. This extraordinary individual was Lieutenant Colonel Charles Howard Bury, and a deep dive into his discovery of strange footprints back in 1921 on the slopes of Everest shows that the idea of the abominable snowman was setting the European imagination aflame long before the famous 1951 photograph. This is Wide Atlantic Weird, a podcast about why people believe weird things. I'm Kean, and as usual, you join me at the cabin in the woods, somewhere in Wild West Cork. This episode, I'm enjoying Irish-American whiskey, distilled on Ackle Island off the coast of County Mayo, and finished in American bourbon barrels. As the Irish summer disappoints us once again, the temperatures have dropped low enough to put me in the mood for tales of snowy mountain mysteries, and the shadows grow on the various artefacts from foreign adventures that adorn the walls of the cabin, grab yourself a drink for this episode, Howard Bury's Footprints, The Discovery of the Yeti. We are certain that Satanism exists. It's the practice of evil. And following closely behind this car was this unidentified flying object. Of the Bigfoot or Sasquatch by bringing in a body. So, before we get started, I'm going to read out a little feedback from some nice things that people have said about the podcast recently. I've been threatening to do it for ages, I really haven't gotten around to it. But actually, when I came to take a look, I realized we'd had a lot of nice things said to us recently, and I thought I'd read some of them out. So, coming to us from Seattle in Washington State. Uh, somebody known as All Things Naturalist was commenting on our recent episode 
about the supposed living mammoth sightings in Siberia. And he wrote, Of course, the Smithsonian doesn't want us to know that it has the mammoth. What I said to him in reply, of course, was that there are so many conspiracies in which the Smithsonian Institute turns out to be the bad guy. You know, if if you trace the history of strange beliefs, especially in the mid-20th century, you get all these stories about the, oh, supposedly the Smithsonian is hiding uh, the statues of biblical giants, all sorts of things. Basically, anytime any, anything weird is found and uh, sent away to the museums, they, once the Smithsonian get their grubby hands on it, it's hidden away and never sees the light of day. Presumably, they have a sort of an Indiana Jones warehouse somewhere full of uh, hidden mysterious things. All I can say is, I did a little bit of work once uh, on behalf of the Smithsonian Tropical Institute about 10 years ago in Panama, and they never showed me any mammoth, and they never showed me any giants either. So uh, either they're not hiding anything, or they just don't show it to uh, low-level lab employees uh, as I was. Meanwhile, over on Twitter, that was on Instagram, sorry. Over on Twitter, we have a little something from Miss P, uh, somewhere in Cork, I believe, just in reference to our episode about the the moving statues, the Irish moving statues episode. That was a supposed miracle that happened back in 1985. She just said, really enjoyed the episode, fascinating subject. Uh, so thanks for that. Uh, incidentally, if you're getting in touch with us, uh, let us know whether you'd like us to use your name or not, and we'll try to honour that. Now, from somewhere else in Cork on Facebook, which is probably our least used of our contactable sources, but we do look at it. Uh, we have a story here from Mr. S, and he says, I really enjoyed the story about the woolly mammoth, um, especially the bit of the story where you had to order that book. So in, in the, the cryptozoological mysterious mammoth sighting episode, I, I talked about the book, uh, Spine Chilling Book of Monsters, which I had as a kid, and I had to send away to order again in order to trace the roots of that particular legend. So Mr. S writes, I have memories of my aunts and uncle's house, and they used to have books on Greek legends and general legends, always loved Bigfoot, mammoths, and uh, it seemed like a time of innocence before the internet. As a kid, I would be in wonder, thinking, wow, this could be real. And that's something I think you really captured in the episode. So thanks, Mr. S. That's uh, extremely nice to hear. Also, oh, he had another story about the Balan Spittle episode, which I'll read out. Again, that's the moving statues. So this one is a little bit more, a little bit more detail. So Mr. S. tells a story about going to see the statue grotto at Garrettstown in, in County Cork when he was young. And he says... Uh, we had a mobile home in Garrettstown we'd go to every summer. It was a blast, but after you'd go to Mass in Ballinspittle, typically on a Sunday night, it was the done thing to go to the local grotto that apparently had a statue of Mary that moved, and you would say a rosary. The priest at the time in, in Ballinspittle was a real fire and brimstone bastard as well. But my mam and granddad came down to visit, uh, and we'd always have to go because of my nan. Um, that's quite common in some uh, Irish families where the parents might not have cared so much, but once the grandparents showed up, uh, yeah, then you would have to go and do some religious stuff, depending on how old you are, of course. Uh, with a car, with a car of five, I'd get stuck going out with them, while my cousins and brothers and sisters would be allowed to head straight home after mass. But I was stuck going to the stupid grotto. It's pretty boring for a seven-year-old, so one day after visiting it and stuck in the back of the car with the grandparents, I decided to lie to spice things up. I told everyone in the car that, yeah, I saw her move that night. And when my nan asked what I saw, I proceeded to trombone the stripper song and say Mary started a striptease. Now by the stripper song, I think you mean 
the, the one that goes this being the song my granddad couldn't stop laughing the parents were trying to keep a straight face and my nan gave out to me for taking mary's name in vain true story ask my mam even today in fairness i was seven and sick of being brought to a moving statue that never moved so thanks mr s i don't know if that clears up um any of the mystery around uh, the supposed happenings back in back in the 80s and the early 90s but uh, it's a good story anyway uh, a quick word here from quebec from a listener mr g saying big fan of the mammoth episode as well so if you haven't heard that one folks do check it out um, it's and it's an odd subject living mammoth sighting supposedly from siberia and then we have another bit of information here from uh, mr m somewhere in i think just north of cork city if i'm getting this right and um mr m says have you seen this film it's a festival of noids noids being short for paranoids that's a local slang term meaning something that weirds you out or makes you uncomfortable and he sent me a link to a film called hagazusa a heathen's curse in the 15th century a young goat herd living alone on a mountain hut feels a dark presence in the woods uh, he goes on to say, I would deem it folk horror based on the excerpt from folkhorror.com you used in the Blair Witch episode. So uh, we did a Blair Witch, we did two Blair Witch episodes actually, and we did one about the first film on in its entirety uh, as an example of what I consider to be American folk horror, and we did a second episode with basically everything else from the Blair Witchiverse, all the other films, all the games, all the comics, uh, one episode for everything else, and that kind of gives you an idea of the level of quality we're dealing with uh, of those two um, representative properties. But there you go. So uh, that's uh, just a little roundup of some nice things people have said to us recently. If you'd like to get in touch with us, uh, we're fairly active still on Twitter, where we, we are at Strange Ireland in memory of our previous podcast show. We are also on Instagram more and more because, uh, I don't know, it can be a little more relaxing than Twitter sometimes. Uh, anyway, we're called Wide Atlantic Weird Podcast there, and we do have a Facebook as well, and I'll put links to those in the show notes as well. So, to return to our topic for this episode, the story of Charles Howard Bury and his supposed Yeti footprints. So, Charles Howard Bury was a, a member of the Anglo-Irish establishment, and this is something I want to explain a little bit for anybody who isn't Irish and doesn't know much about this particular unusual social phenomena. So, Back in the day, you know, up until some point in the early or mid-20th century, the Anglo-Irish were a group of people within Ireland who tended to be the upper class. They tended to be descended from, um, from, from the English or from the British. And they tended to, stereotypically at least, they live in the big house in the countryside and all of the farmers and the peasants and the servants and everybody work for them. So they were sort of stereotypically top of the heap in terms of the social order. They were the land-owning gentry is probably the simplest way that I can put this. Uh, but it's 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 a, a strange and multifaceted concept, and it's one that the Irish have not always been comfortable with, and it's one that we haven't always found it easy to find a place for. So certainly after independence in the 1920s, uh, we go through a period of sort of reinventing ourselves and uh, choosing elements from our history that we are we like and that we're proud of, and there are things that we want to keep, and there are things that we, I, I guess you could say, de-emphasize. Some of the complexities of this are seen in the, you know, who we choose to include as the quote-unquote canonical famous Irish people at this time. 
You know, we, we have no problem, for example, um, claiming people like Oscar Wilde or um, maybe W.B. Yeats as Irish people, even though they were both Anglo-Irish. I think we don't have much of a problem with the folks who were either artists or literati, writers, uh, and especially not people who were out-and-out out, um, nationalists or, you know, sort of Irish patriots. I think we've always been comfortable giving them a place in the pantheon of great Irishmen. People like Bram Stoker then took a little bit longer because although he was better known for as, as a writer than for anything else, of course he wrote Dracula, uh, for a lot of the 20th century, because because of his the way he lived his life, we didn't really see him or celebrate him, perhaps as an Irishman. He was Anglo-Irish, he worked... He was born in Dublin, he worked in Dublin Castle, but he moved to London, you know, as soon as it became profitable to do so. He wrote a lot of his stories from the point of view of an Anglo, an, an English person or an Anglo-identifying person, and a lot of his most famous stories, including Dracula, take place in London. But he, you know, he spent the first part of his life in, uh, in, in Dublin working there, and some of his early novels were set in Ireland uh, and were very much about Irish things like... Uh, his early book, The Snake's Pass. So complicated figures here, and the Irish relationship to them has always been complicated as well. So while we may have been happy taking some of these particular people on board, there were others less so. So other famous people who were not necessarily famous for being Anglo-Irish include Ernest Shackleton, the famous explorer. He was actually born in Athai, and Arthur Wellesley, of course, the Duke of Wellington, the hero of Waterloo, who though you don't hear it very often, was born in Dublin. Again, a complicated legacy here, because um, when you ask most Irish people about him, they'll say, oh, he was the guy who said, you don't have to be a horse to be born in a stable. This is basically, people usually bring this line out as if to say, look, some of these folks just did not consider themselves to be Irish. So you don't have to be a horse to be born in a stable, clearly showing that, you know, he has nothing but disdain for the place where he was born and doesn't identify with that culture at all. However, like many, many things in history, when you look into them, these, these little quips, these little snippets that we like to pass on because they, they seem to somehow sum up an idea or a person or a time, they invariably, when we research them, we find out it wasn't that simple. So this phrase, don't have to be a horse to be born in a stable, was not said by the Duke of Wellington. It was said by none other than Daniel O'Connell about the Duke of Wellington and then was attributed to him afterwards. So Daniel O'Connell, of course, was a bona fide uh, Irish, Irish patriot, a guy who worked for the independence of Ireland in the 19th century. But it's, it's incredible to me that we all use this turn of phrase now to talk about the Duke of Wellington, but he never said it himself. O'Connell said it about him, and maybe that was the perception of him, but it only goes to show how the, the notion of Anglo-Irish within within our folk memory is slippery and has changed many times over the years. For an interesting horror take on this, there's a, a rather incredible movie called The Lodgers, which came out in... Two, it's an Irish film, came out in 2017, directed by Brian O'Malley, starring Charlotte Vega, uh, Bill Milner is in it, and, and Eugene Simon is the other young fellow in it as well. Now, this was almost all filmed at Loftus Hall in County Wexford, which is a real-life, quote-unquote, haunted house. It's um, well-known in the region as being a source of urban legends and the location of a lot of legend tripping as well. 
Now, I wrote a book about this, or rather, I wrote a blog about this back in the day, 2017 or 18, and in, in which I make the case that this film, I think, is about the Anglo-Irish. It's, it's a, in many ways, a traditional English, pseudo-English, pseudo-British Victorian-era ghost story. There's a spooky old house in the countryside. There's a, a couple who are brother and sister who live in the house, and it, it's clear, it's being hinted that they are somehow neither of this world nor of the next. They exist in this sort of liminal place. Again, all very standard, solid Victorian ghost story type tropes, except the film is taking place in Ireland in the early 20th century at a time when, you know, the, the, the fight for independence was happening in reality. And it's my, it was my contention when I wrote this blog post that the film was trying to address this, that the brother and sister are liminal not just in the supernatural spooky ghost story sense, but also in the fact that they are clearly Anglo-descended people living in the big house, you know, the landed gentry, the ones who neither feel fully Irish nor fully English. And that's how it was for a lot of the Anglo-Irish. They were not, not accepted as being properly Irish when they were here, but they were considered to be Irish when they were in, in England, for example. And there's a, a quote from... The, I'm going to read a quote from my own blog here. I wrote, I have come all the way from the mainland, says the family's lawyer, the aptly named Mr. Birmingham, referring to England, presuming this to be the pair's spiritual home. This is our mainland, replies the girl, showing that they are at least as separated from their cultural cousins across the sea as they are from the local Gaelic Irish, who resent their presence and curse the locals who return from the trenches, having served the British Empire in the First World War. The lawyer even mentions that though his family has attended to the financial affairs of their own for generations, none of his own forebears have ever troubled to actually visit the property. They are paternalistic absentee landlords, dealing with their half-forgotten ward in the manner that England dealt with Ireland. I put a link to this blog post on Twitter at the time, and the director actually found me and reached out and uh, said thanks very much, and uh, I think I said... Oh, you know, I, I hope I'm not imposing my own political take on your film with this article. And he said, no, I, I think you are actually spot on with the with the interpretation of the politics and the, the idea of the Anglo-Irish as being this sort of almost ghost-like liminal thing, not quite in one world, not quite in another. And then he went on to say that he felt this political nuance was largely lost on audiences abroad. So that was nice. And, and, and then everybody in the cafe cheered. OK, well, that didn't happen. So that is The Lodgers. I do, well, forgive me for quoting myself, but I do recommend you check it out. Last a few months, as of a few months ago, it was on Netflix and um, definitely worth a look. And Loftus Hall is a tremendous, tremendous location. It's up for sale. I saw only this week. Uh, I do reckon that as of recently, some organization had, was at least renting it and using it for Halloween themed haunted house type visitor attractions which is pretty cool but yeah it's up for sale now so if you want your own sort of uh, <laughs> rotting irish haunted house uh, get onto daft.ie and see how much it's going for so let's get back to our boy colonel howard bury so i'm going to let you know about some of the sources for this story because he in my opinion is a great anglo-irish person i'm fascinated by the whole victorian period i love all the stories about um, Victorian adventurers and explorers going out and having crazy adventures. 
I'm an anti-imperialist myself, and yet I am fascinated by and drawn to this period in all of its contradictions. And we're going to take a look at that through the lens of this one guy. So, yeah, let's talk about my sources. I'm, I'm kind of excited about some of these. I found some great stuff recently. So, number one is a book I came across totally by chance in, in Vibes and Scribes in Cork City, which is my favourite bookshop in the city. And the book is just called Yeti, An Abominable History. It's by Graham Hoyland. Graham Hoyland is a, a mountaineer. So that's his take. He talks, he spends a lot of time in this book, maybe the first whole half of the book, on the birth of the abominable snowman phenomena you know, as a function of Western explorers in the Himalayas in the mid to early to mid 20th century and just how it, how it appears in the Western imagination. And yeah, I just love that his angle on it is that he's a mountaineer. He knows some of the guys he's talking about in the book. He's obsessed with all of their biographies. And he's he's really funny. He's really dry. He's quite sarcastic sometimes, especially about the genre of mountaineer books. So really, really worth a look. And it, the second half of the book, it goes a little wacky. It goes a little... He spreads himself very thin. He gets stuck into all sorts of other elements of cryptozoology and kind of gives most of them fairly short shrift. He's a, he's a fairly fairly heavy skeptic, I would say. But certainly the, the book is full of crazy, uh, interesting stories. There's a lot of stuff here I've read in other places, but there's a lot of things I didn't know as well. So some of the information about the beginning of the Abominable Snowman legend I got from this book, Yeti, An Abominable History, I thoroughly recommend it. Uh, the second source I have here is called is an article online called Lieutenant Curl, Colonel Charles Howard Bury, The Great Adventurer of Belvedere House. Now, this is an article written by Jason McEvitt, and it's only from April 2020, so it's very recent. The Yeti book, incidentally, is only from 2018 as well. There's lots of stuff in it that's really, really, you know, as much as you're going to get in a book, you know, it, it's very current. But yeah, this article is, is just a few months old, so that's cool. Uh, so Jason McEvitt is a, is a historian, and he writes uh, on a page about Mullingar history, and this article is tremendous. It goes into great depth all about the life of this extraordinary man, so I'm massively indebted to uh, both of these guys, and I recommend that you check out their, you know, blogs and books and things. I'll put a few links in the show notes for those. Now, I also have a e-copy of Colonel... Charles Howard Bury's own book, Mount Everest, The Reconnaissance, 1921. Written, as you imagine, about that particular expedition and published within the year, about a year afterwards. So this is a tough read, as books from this time tend to be, but you really get a sense of what the man was like himself. And it's it, it puts things in perspective, okay? The, the key paragraph we're going to spend a lot of time on in this episode that, that helped to birth the legend of the abominable snowman is very short and, you know, it's not really anything he thought he was focusing on or making a big deal out of. And I'm sure what came of it uh, was a tremendous surprise to him. Lastly, I have a really great website I'm excited to recommend called, it's just called Anomalies. The The URL is anomalyinfo.com. This is run by, uh, written by a fellow named Gareth Haslam and it's a tremendous resource, folks. I I can't recommend it enough for anyone who's interested in the history of strange thinking but wants to be critical about it like I do myself. What Gareth Haslam does is he takes all of these legends in a 
sort of a fortean sense like in the, in in the sense of Charles Fort back in the 20s just collecting weird stories except he takes he he finds out where they came from originally and he always 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 goes for primary documents whenever he can and he lets you know if if he's tracing a story back through history you know using books um hearsay newspaper articles and when he hits a wall when he says i can't find any further records of this story prior to this particular time he lets you know and he kind of leaves it there and that's really important to me because it gives you a hint as to you know who may have started off these particular legends so that's uh, anomalies uh, anomalyinfo.com by garth haslam he's done tremendous heavy lifting on this particular story i think he's probably the earliest person to make the connections that i'm going to be making later on they show up in the uh, yeti book as well by graham hoyland but graham hoyland is taking from garth haslam so as far as i can tell he's one of the earliest guys to have actually gone over all the old documents and figured out the exact chronology of events that led to this story becoming something of a legend all right so to set the scene a little bit I'm going to uh, do some readings of earlier Western stories of uh, yetis or uh, abominable snowmen as they were known uh, by travelers and explorers in the West. Of course, within the Himalayas themselves, the idea of these creatures is a little more complicated, a little more nebulous. It has a lot to do with uh, spirituality and religion in some cases, and that's a little bit beyond the scope of this episode. As a zoologist, as a uh, you know, sometime cryptozoologist, perhaps. What I'm interested in really is that period when the West suddenly pays attention to this idea and briefly imagines that maybe this is a real physical animal that we could go and look for. So that is the way that they interpret some of these stories. I'm going to read a couple of them from the Yeti Abominable History book, that's Graham Hoyland's book, just to set the scene. So you know what were people thinking about? What were their ideas about this creature at the time that Howard Bury um, has his sighting of the footprints? So, according to Graham Hoyland, the earliest Western account of a wild man in the Himalayas dates from 1832 and is given by Brian Houghton Hodgson, the court of Nepal's first British resident and the first Englishman permitted to visit this forbidden land. Hodgson had to contend with the hotbed that was, and is, Nepalese politics. He was particularly interested in the natural history and ethnography of the region, and so his report carries some weight. He recorded that his native hunters had been frightened by a, quote, wild man. Now, a quote from the man himself. Religion has introduced the Bandar monkey into the central region, where it seems to flourish, half domesticated in the neighbourhood of temples in the populous valleys of Nepal proper. My shooters were once alarmed in the Kachar, by the apparition of a wild man, possibly an orang, but I doubt their accuracy. They mistook the creature for a cacodemon or rakshas, and fled from it instead of shooting it. It moved, they said, erectly, was covered with long, dark hair, and had no tail. So, Hoyland then goes on to say that Hodgson himself didn't see this quote-unquote wild man, and in fact did doubt the story himself. But it is interesting, this is one of the earliest um, accounts of the idea that there's a wild man in the Himalayas. Here we have a very physical, zoological interpretation of the creature. So certainly we're, we're reading this through the lens of the British resident himself, and that's his particular take on it. He doesn't go into any detail really about uh, the size of the creature or whether it was dangerous or anything like that. And he doesn't use any of the words that we now associate with the animal. He doesn't call it 
uh, a yeti or an abominable snowman or anything all of that is still to come then hoyland goes on to maybe the one, one of the most important early early descriptions and this is by a fellow called major lawrence waddle and he was a uh, i know him as a sort of a, a british indian officer but um, he says here <clears throat> he calls him english soldier and explorer major lawrence waddle he was a professor of Tibetan culture and a professor of chemistry, a surgeon and an archaeologist, and he had roamed Tibet in disguise. There's a lot of that, actually. We'll hear more about that soon. It's quite a common thing for these sort of British officers to be in disguise in, at this time as they roam around the, the northern fringes of British India looking for adventure. He is thought by some to be the real-life precursor of the film character Indiana Jones. Now, that he's taking this from a biography of Waddle, written by Preston, but, oh man, there are so many characters out there who claim to be the inspiration for Indiana Jones or who writers claim were, in fact, the inspiration for Indiana Jones. You know, I mean, maybe. Take it take it for what it is. Uh, one of his theories included a belief that the beginning of all civilization dated from the Aryan Sumerians who were blonde Nordics with blue eyes. These theories were later picked up by the German Nazis and led to their expedition to Tibet in 1938. Now, the whole uh, that that's beyond the scope of this episode, but I do love when I pick up a book because it's about yetis and less than 20 pages in, I'm up to my eyeballs in Nazi occult nonsense. Great stuff. Right, here's the meat of the story. While exploring in northeast Sikkim in 1889, Waddle's party came across a large set of footprints which his servants said were made by the yeti, a beast that was highly dangerous and fed on humans. So here's the quote. Some large footprints in the snow led ac across our track and away up to the higher peaks. These were alleged to be the trail of the hairy wild men who were believed to live amongst the eternal snows, along with the mythical white lions whose roar is reputed to be heard during storms. The belief in these creatures is universal amongst Tibetans. None, however, of the many Tibetans who I have interrogated on this subject could ever give me an authentic case. On the most superficial investigation, it always resolved into something heard tell of. These so-called hairy wild men are evidently the great yellow snow bear, Ursus isabellinus, which is highly carnivorous and often kills yaks. Yet, although most of the Tibetans know this bear sufficiently to give it a wide berth, they live in such an atmosphere of superstition that they are always ready to find extraordinary and supernatural explanations of uncommon events. Now, there's some important stuff here, folks. For a very early case, we have the word Yeti showing up. And we this is 1889. And we have skepticism from the Westerner. So he hears the story, he presumes it's folklore, and he immediately pins the, the culprit uh, on, the, on the bear, on the, the, the snow bear, as he calls it. Now, Graham Hoyland makes the point that Ursus Isabellinus can be yellow, can be brown, can be blackish. But... It's just, like, the most up-to-date uh, books and scientific articles you can get about the Yeti all point to it being some sort of misinterpretation of the kind of bears that they have in the Himalayas. So, really interesting to see right at the beginning the very first uh, really clear example of the, this bit of folklore uh, seems to contain the seeds of its own demise within it, right? And, and people ignored this. You know, they were this was ignored for the rest of the history of the legend, you know, the, the, the answer was right there, but people preferred the, the legend to any sort of sensible interpretation of it. But that's what this show is all about. We're interested in why people believe weird things. So that 
sets the stage for the main character, finally, of our episode, who, of course, is Lieutenant Colonel Charles Howard Bury. Now, so we're going to start Colonel Howard Bury's uh, story about the footprints. We're going to start by reading the legend first. And the source I've chosen for this is Ivan T. Sanderson's infamous 1961 book, Abominable Snowman, Legend Come to Life. Ivan T. Sanderson isn't pretty well known. He's he's respected by some, not necessarily by me. He was a Scottish um, popularizer of cryptozoology in the, largely in the 1940s and 50s. He was the kind of guy who, to be charitable, never let the truth get in the way of a good story. And this particular 1961 book is responsible for popularizing a lot of stories that would then go on to become very well known. A lot of them were repeated over and over and over again by other authorities without doing any primary research. And I owe a lot of this information to the Anomalies website myself, but I have also gone back and checked as many of the primary sources as I can. But, you know, before we get into that, let's see how Ivan T. Sanderson, in his very influential book, interprets this particular story. Uh, The only thing I want to mention is that, weirdly, he dates it to 1920 instead of 1921. I don't know why that is. Could be just a typo or a are a mistake, but uh, it just muddies the waters a little bit more. So, Ivan T. Sanderson writes, In that year, an incident occurred that was impressive enough, but which might have been either wholly or temporarily buried, had it not been for a concatenation of almost piffling mistakes. In fact, without these mistakes, it is almost certain that the whole matter would have remained in obscurity and might even now be considered in an, an entirely different light, or in the status of such other mysteries. This was a telegram sent by Lieutenant Colonel, now Sir, C.K. Howard Bury, who was on a reconnaissance expedition to the Mount Everest region. The expedition was approaching the northern face of Everest, that is to say from the Tibetan side, and when at about 17,000 feet up the Lakpa La Pass saw and watched through binoculars a number of dark forms moving about on a snowfield far above. It took them some time and considerable effort to reach the snowfield where these creatures had been, but when they did so, they found large numbers of huge footprints, which Colonel Howard Bury later stated were about three times those of normal humans, but which he nonetheless also said he thought had been made by a, quote, very large stray grey wolf. The extraordinarily illogical phrasing of this statement will be discussed later on, but it should be noted here that a large party of people had seen several creatures moving about, not just a wolf, and that it is hard to see how the colonel could determine its colour from its tracks. However, despite these expressions, the Sherpa porters with the expedition disagreed with them most firmly and stated that the tracks were made by a creature of human form to which they gave the name Mito Kangmi. Colonel Howard Bury appears to have been intrigued by this scrap of what he seems to have regarded as local folklore, but like all who have had contact with them, he had such respect for the Sherpas that he included the incident in a report that he sent to Kathmandu, capital of Nepal, to be telegraphed on to his representatives in India. And this is where the strange mistakes began. It appears that Colonel Howard Bury, in noting the name given by the Sherpas, either mistranslated it or miswrote it, He also failed to realise that he was dealing with one of several kinds of creatures known to the Sherpas, and that they, on this occasion, apparently both in an endeavour to emphasise this, and for the sake of clarity, used a generic term, the name Kangmi, which was a word foreign to their language. 
This is a Tibetan colloquialism in some areas, and is itself partly of foreign origin even there. The combination of words thus meant snow creature. His meto would better have been written mete, a name of which we shall hear much, and which turns out to mean the me or man-sized te or wild creature. However, the Indian telegraphist then got in the act, and either he dispatched this word as, uh, or was transcribed in India as mech. The recipients in India were unfamiliar with any of the languages or dialects of the area, but they were impressed by the fact that Howard Bury had thought whatever it might be important enough to cable a report, so they appealed to a sort of fount of universal wisdom for help. This was a remarkable gentleman named Mr. Henry Newman, who has for years written a most fascinating column in the Calcutta Statesman on almost every conceivable subject. He talks a little bit more about this guy, this newspaper man, Henry Newman, who is important to the story. And then he says that Newman comes up with the translation, Abominable Snowman. And he says the result was like the explosion of an atom bomb. Basically meaning that this became a very, very popular story within the press. And he says, thus, the birth of the abominable snowman per se may be precisely dated as of 1920. Okay, thanks Ivan T. Sanderson. That is a the way you will hear the story told in lots of books, especially ones published, you know, in the second half of the 20th century. It's a pretty, pretty much a mishmash of things that are true and things that are not. It's actually very difficult to get in there and untangle them, but we're going to do our best. First and foremost, let, let us remind ourselves that this event happened in 1921, not 1920. And I think it's time to find out, well, who exactly was this guy, Colonel Howard Bury, anyway? A member of the Anglo-Irish establishment, who we spent so much time briefing you on earlier, uh, he was born either in London or in Charleville Castle in Tullamore in County Offaly. There is some disagreement about this. Uh, some sources that I've read claim London, some don't. Either way, he was a member of a very established Anglo-Irish family with really rather incredible connections. Very well off indeed and basically grew up in a fantastic location, Charleville Castle in Tullamore. Offaly, of course, was called King's County back in the day, just to set the scene and get you into that uh, imperial mindset. He was born in 1881. Charleville Castle itself, I encourage you to look up. It is an astonishing building. There are some really amazing castles all around Ireland, built around 1800, so not one of your uh, sort of official medieval castles, but rather a, an early 19th century sort of a early neo-gothic version of it and wow this castle has some pedigree as a haunted house there it has it seems to have featured on just about all of the cheesy ghost hunting shows that you know from both british and american television i'm not going to get into it too much that's slightly beyond the scope of this episode but the the main story seems to be about a little girl named harriet who in 1861 she was i suppose a young member of the of the bury family was trying to surprise her parents by sliding down the banisters, the main balustrade of the house, and fell off at the end and died. And supposedly guests hear her voice at night, screaming or crying or laughing, various other spooky things. Must be said, by the 1860s, there was hardly a grand big house in England or Ireland or Scotland or Wales that didn't have a ghost like this, but I still love it anyway. Another little story I, I can't resist telling is that the... In, in the late 1700s, I think 1795, something like that, the town of Tullamore was mostly thatched cottages still, apart from the big house. 
and the 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 current uh, head of the household, I suppose a close ancestor of uh, Howard Bury himself, for his twenty first birthday, it was celebrated by setting him up in a hot air balloon, which was inc- an incredibly fashionable thing to do for the super rich in the late seventeen hundreds. But he had an accident. The balloon came down in the middle of the village. There was a fire, and pretty much the whole village burned to the ground, and then had to be rebuilt. So yeah, a little a little glimpse there into the life of the idle rich in those days. Now, from the Mullingar history article, I've just taken a note here to give you an idea of the the sort of family that um, Mr. Howard Bury was coming from. The article notes. Captain Kenneth Howard Bury, his father, was a noted botanist and had been a captain in the Royal Horse Artillery, travelling extensively throughout the British Empire, including Australia, Canada and India. These latter travels to distant lands no doubt fulfilled Kenneth Howard Bury's love of botany and allowed him to compare and contrast different types of flora on his travels. Indeed, it has been suggested that both Captain Howard and Lady Emily Bury had met while both were on separate botanical excursions to North Africa. This love for adventure and all things botanic by the parents of Colonel Charles Howard Bury would no doubt influence their son as he grew older. Now, that gives you some idea as to where his influences may have come from. This was the sort of world he was born into. This was the sort of life he had. Uh, also, he had a cousin by the name of Lord Lansdowne, who was uh, nothing less than the Viceroy of India at this time, I think from the late 1880s until 1900 or 1904 something like that anyway he had he followed the kind of traditional path for these upper class firstborn sons Uh, he went to Eton College in England he went to Sandhurst for military training to be an officer in 1904 he was posted to India so British India of course would have been a, a tremendously exciting place to have been for a young fellow at the time a place to make your mark a place to have adventures you had some duties to do, pro- probably in the military towns, and then on your off time, you would tend to go up into the mountains and the foothills in the north of India and do some shooting, which was a pretty common pastime. Now, there's a huge overlap here between adventuring and spying at this time, and it's really hard to know what was really going on because a lot of these guys wrote biographies where they would say, oh, well, you know, I was up in the, up in the Himalayas doing some shooting, you know, as one does. And there's a lot of speculation that, in fact, they were uh, spying, keeping, you know, checking up on borders, keeping an eye on what was going on in, you know, Afghanistan or Russia or even China, depending on where they were posted. There's a lot of evidence that some of them were trying to get into the still forbidden kingdoms of the Himalayas, places like uh, Lhasa and, and, and Tibet and stuff like that. But it's really hard to know. There's a lot of a lot of speculation. But bear with me and keep that in mind. So uh, when he was posted to India, he began his kind of interest in mountaineering and game hunting and stuff like this that would uh, stick with him for his whole life. He goes on his first major adventure in 1905 and he goes into Tibet secretly and against the wishes of the the then Viceroy, Lord Curzon, who chews him out for doing this. Uh, In a fairly typical move, he stains his face with walnut juice, which didn't have any QAnon connotations back then, thankfully. This is just a thing to make him look a bit darker, make him look more like a local, and something that British officers uh, on the Lark used to do quite a bit in those days. He claims to have shot a man-eating tiger during this time, earning him the respect of all the locals uh, during his adventure in Tibet. He also claims to speak French, Hindi, Punjabi, and Urdu, which makes me think he must have been a bit of a 
a real-life Flashman, Harry Flashman. Whether or not this is true, it, it, the, the evidence is that his talent with languages and travel was respected because he was indeed promoted to intelligence services shortly afterwards, meaning that, yes, you will get chewed out by the Viceroy of India for being a little bit impertinent, but actually, jolly good old boy, you know, we rather respect this, really. And um, with his connections and whatnot, he seemed like a sure, a surefire uh, good promotion there for the old spy services. And this casts everything else he does, both before and afterwards, in a certain shade. So again, he doesn't. we don't know that he was spying when he did any of this stuff, but it's certainly a possibility. In 1912, uh, the death of a cousin results in him inheriting Belvedere Castle, as one does, which is a another beautiful Palladian building back in Ireland, this time in County Offaly, built in 1740, and also a really, really astonishing building that I believe is open to the public. You can go and see. Uh, some of the interesting things about this one are that a former owner of the castle built what is called a folly, which is a, a pointless building, known as the Jealous Wall, because he couldn't stand to look at the house of his brother. They'd been feuding over the attentions of, of his wife, I believe. It's still there, you can go and see it. And the Jealous Wall is enormous. It's built to resemble a ruined medieval abbey. And this house also, inevitably, is rumoured to be haunted. If, if YouTube is anything to go by, it seems to be the haunt of many Irish ghost hunter groups. So that's another kind of a strange connection there. So this is the second of two big old spooky rambling haunted houses connected to Mr. Howard Bury. And we haven't even gotten to the abominable snowman yet. So around about 1912, he's back in Ireland. He's running the estate, but all around him seem to notice that, you know, his heart really isn't in it. He's dreaming of adventure. So his eyes scanning the map turned to the Tian Shan Mountains, a fairly rugged and inaccessible part of Central Asia. It's a mountain range running across Russia, China, India, Kazakhstan and Uzbekistan, all places which are at this point still difficult to access and not very well known by the European powers. He's also inspired potentially by the chaos that's been happening in China at this point. China has just had a messy revolution. This is the period of the, if anyone has seen the film The Last Emperor, which I really need to see again. It's about the the last, the final emperor of China in 1912, who was deposed, a fellow called Pu Yi, a, a little boy at the time who was raised from childhood to, to be this god emperor, and then only to have the whole system crash around him. It's a, a pretty incredible time. Howard Bury is excited about traveling the mountains, uh, separating these countries at a time when they are lawless and revolutionary and there's bandits and uh, all sorts of crazy things going on. And this is just the sort of thing that you know, these uh, Anglo-Irish and British adventurers like doing at this time. One of the things that happens to him while he's out on this adventure is he comes across a group of hunters who are playing about with what he what he reckons to be a three-week-old bear cub, which he acquires and eventually takes back to Ireland. So it's a, it's a type of brown bear, Ursus arctos arctos, but it's a subspecies, uh, sometimes known as the white-clawed bear, that in, in that particular mountain range. He names it Agu, which is Kazakh for bear. And this bear lived at Belvedere House back in County Offaly for years and was quite well known in the area and uh, eventually died at, at Dublin Zoo. So I think it's fair to say, well, given what's going to come up next, that Howard Bury knew his bear tracks. And if you visit the Grenville Arms Hotel today in Mullingar, you can see poor Agu's head mounted on the wall to this very day. 
At the outbreak of the First World War, Colonel Howard Bury then rejoined the King's Royal Rifles, the army group he'd been with previously. He got stuck into some of the most famous battles of the Western Front and uh, was captured and escaped more than once from German POW camps and was then recaptured. After the war, he came back to his castle in Ireland, only to find, of course, that Ireland was to be convulsed in the Irish War of Independence to try and get out of the British Empire. So round about 1920 and 1921, things were really heating up. Uh, This would have been a very distressing time to be part of the Anglo-Irish establishment in those days. Everything that you knew about uh, the country you were in was changing. Um, And as people saw the kind of elite Protestant landed gentry, especially those living in the big houses, as a symbol of the establishment, a lot of these houses were burned down in retribution for the sort of crimes of the British Empire. Of course, this was the time when the the British auxiliary forces and the Black and Tans, the infamous Black and Tans, were going around the country burning down villages in reprisal for guerrilla attacks by the IRB. So this would have been very, very close to home for Howard Bury. Uh, something like 14 big houses had been burned down in the region around him during this time. So he was definitely very aware that the tide was turning and um, something, some big change was coming. Nevertheless, he was made High Sheriff for Kings County and for Offaly in 1920. And it is possible here that at this point his mind started to wander once again to adventure and even to escape these, these dire circumstances. Now, this uh, period of the Irish War of Independence also coincides with a, a, a kind of golden age of mountaineering for, for the British and for the Anglo-Irish. There's an obsession with Everest, particularly at this time, and there's a, an obsession with being the first to get to the top of Everest. This lasts, of course, right until the 1950s. Uh, it wasn't until, I think, 1953 that Everest is finally uh, bested. But there are lots of different countries in Europe trying to be the first ones to do it. And this is seen as the sort of thing that, you know, um, strong and adventurous young men of the of the British system ought to be trying to do. So being a very well-connected fellow and one who speaks multiple Asian languages and one who has travelled in the region, it's not that difficult for Howard Bury to get involved in one of these expeditions round about this time. Uh, a fellow by the name of Sir Francis Young Husband reaches out to him. Uh, Young Husband at the time is the leader of the, the RGS, the Royal Geographical Society, and he's an incredible character. Um, I, w- I once knew a fellow, when I worked in Surrey, I once knew a fellow who was a member of the RGS and had offered to show me around their, their base in London. I really, really wish I'd had time to go and do that. It's one of my minor regrets. A lot of my adventuring heroes, of course, were involved with the RGS and uh, some of their books and artifacts and notes were still there. But maybe someday I'll get another chance. Anyway, Sir Francis Young Husband, an incredible fellow. Uh, one of these really typical, uh, start the first half of his career, he's one of these really typical Northwest frontier types, these kind of stuffy upper class Brits who then go off into a life of adventure and spying in the mountains of Central Asia very much a figure in, in the late period of what's called the Great Game, the manoeuvring against Russia in Central Asia by Britain. He then becomes a sort of a proto-hippie, and he takes on some of the mystical elements of the religions of the cultures he interacts with. And I, I think he's a key figure in the sort of mythologizing of the Himalayas in, in the Western occult tradition, which 
you know, comes from Theosophy and Helena Blavatsky and all of that sort of thing. But he's definitely an important figure in creating this mystical version of the, the forbidden secret Himalayas, you know, where the ascended masters live in, in some sort of secret city. That's big time where he went later on in his career. He was uh, most infamously part of the 1903 fairly brutal and murderous British expedition to force their way into the hidden cities of Tibet, during which they basically mowed down hundreds and hundreds of of uh, Tibetan lamas with machine guns just to force their way in and um, do their colonial thing there. So, uh, you know, uh, he, he's done... He's an interesting character. Later in life, he sent a letter to Ernst Schaefer, who is uh, the lead character in that 1938 Nazi expedition to Tibet, also for bad reasons, uh, which is unfortunately will have to remain a story for another day. But that's a very strange one as well. So that's it. So this fellow young husband reaches out to our boy Howard Bury and says, listen, old boy, we need somebody to to lead this expedition to Everest. And I think you just might be the chap to do it. So Colonel Howard Bury winds up on at the head of what's called the 1921 Everest Reconnaissance Expedition. The idea is not that they will realistically get up to the top of Everest, that is beyond them, but they are going to scope out the different approaches and decide which one might be the best. So this is this what he talks about in his book, uh, Everest Reconnaissance 1921, and he mentions all of this stuff about getting to India and the, the details of it. He's making deals with the Indian Viceroy, Lord Redding. He's uh, communicating with the Dalai Lama, getting permission uh, to enter the country, and he has their blessing. He's getting... He talks about how the funding works, how he gets all of his team together, and they're going to make an attempt on, of course, Everest, which is known as uh, Chamalongma in in the local languages. He enters through Darjeeling. He travels through the province of Sikkim to get to the slopes of the uh, the lower slopes of the mountain. He picks up uh, a number of what he calls coolies, which is a phrase I associate with the Far East, but um, I suppose the the British Indian officers might have used this for the local hired labour as well. And he, he has a, a small number of European English climbers with him as well, including the famous George Mallory. George Mallory's huge figure in this kind of golden age of British mountaineering. Very famously, he later disappears on the slopes of Everest in 1924. And he become, it becomes this enormous mystery. All mountaineering writing at this time is obsessed with what happened to George Mallory. Uh, whether he, what, Did he make it to the top of Everest or not? His body eventually is found in 1999, but people still debate whether or not he managed to get to the top and then died on his way down, or whether he never made it up there at all. But there's a lot of rumours, a lot of conspiracy theories about the disappearance of George Mallory, so it's really exciting to see him show up in this earlier expedition as a young, slightly younger man. If you're interested in this stuff, there's a, a, a middling recommendation I'll drop is for a novel by Dan Simmons, uh, called The Abominable. Dan Simmons wrote the original book, The Terror. If you watch the TV series about the, the terror, the expedition, the, the Franklin expedition to the North Pole in the 1840s, and you like that TV show, certainly that book is amazing. I'll, I'll give a, a soft recommend to his other book, The Abominable. It's all about the British attempts to get to Everest in the 1920s during this period. It goes into a lot of depth about people like George Mallory and the legends around them. There is some stuff about the the Yeti in there as well. It's a very strange book. It goes to some very strange places. But if, uh, yeah, soft recommend. I, I do. I might read it again someday. It's enormous and very strange, but you might enjoy it if you like this stuff. 
So Howard Bury, of course, was a botanist, and during this expedition, he's discovering and naming lots of new plant species. And basically, they spend the summer of 1921 exploring the north and central faces of Everest, you know, just to find out which would be the most sensible way to make a proper uh, attempt up to the top of the mountain another time. And the key date for our uh, abominable snowman story is September 22nd, 1921. So Howard Bury is sending notes via, you know, runners back down to India every so often. Uh, and these are being published in newspapers in India and then eventually making their way back to Britain because the, the British public have a tremendous interest, of course, in the mountaineering uh, adventures at this time. So for what exactly was written in the diary that day and what exactly was sent to the newspapers on that day, I have to defer to the Anomaly Info page. Like I said, they've done incredible work on this, getting all of the chronological information out there in exactly the order in which we think it happened. So what I can say is that some of the exact wording that Howard Bury used about that day was, he says, quote, we did, uh, about footprints that they found at this on this day. He says, we, disting we distinguished hare and fox tracks, but one mark, like that of a human foot, was most puzzling. The coolies assured me that it was the track of a wild, hairy man, and that these men were occasionally to be found in the wildest and most inaccessible mountains. Pretty exciting stuff. The newspapers, as you can imagine, went to town on this. But pay attention, there's nothing here about seeing any of the wild men um, in the actual report. Compare that to the rather more dramatic uh, example we had at the beginning where we read the legendary version from Ivan T. Sanderson's 1961 book. So somewhere in between the legend grew. And we're going to do our best now to trace exactly how that happened. So that's a, a segment of what Howard Bury sent himself or wrote himself on the day and sent to the newspapers. They really went nuts with this and the story very quickly after that began to grow. So just remember that Howard Bury on the day didn't see any creatures and he himself didn't think that the prints were any kind of monster. He talks about the the, the, the Sherpas and how they have this tradition of the, of the wild man, but he himself uh, is not buying into this. But the newspapers start to speculate that there must be some kind of mysterious race uh, of, of beings living up in the, in the snows. And then the, the name, the Abominable Snowman, is applied more or less the way that Sanderson reported it, as, as we spoke about earlier. So that's um, the sort of misinterpretation of the native languages and, and the coining of the phrase by the newspaperman Henry Newman, uh, referring to Howard Bury's report. But then... In the newspapers, the story starts to grow. So uh, people in London are now reading, and, and around the world, are now reading that, in fact, Bure, when they were finding these footprints, um, Howard Bury's coolies, his porters, his Sherpas, were supposedly seeing the beings watching them from far away, as though waiting their chance to perhaps attack. So again, the story gets more salacious, it gets more exciting. And by the time it's showing up in newspapers in, in places as far away as uh, America and the US and uh, Canada, the story has grown legs in directions that I don't think Howard Bury himself could have potentially predicted. So I've dug out one of these reports just for interest. It's a bit of an obscure paper. It's like a, a regional US one called the Warsaw Union from a town called Warsaw in Indiana. Not for any particular reason. There's lots of newspaper articles about this at the time. But... 
what starts happening is this other character starts to show up in the stories corroborating the prints that Howard Bury sees. So newspapers start reporting that an earlier explorer has a similar story and now that he's heard about How Howard Bury's prints, he's ready to come out and tell his tale. So here's what he had to say. So from the Warsaw Union, the article is called He Saw Snowman. Clearly the abominable snowman name is, is quite well known by now. Englishman corroborates story told by explorers. Probability that there is a mysterious race that has not been reached by civilization. William Hugh Knight, a member of the British Royal Society's Club, recently recalled to a representative of the London Times an occasion some years ago when he was able to inspect closely a figure which he believes to be that of one of the quote-unquote abominable snowmen to whom reference has been made by members of the Mount Everest expedition. He said, Shortly before the last Tibetan War, I'm just going to interject here and say there's no date given for this story, but over time, this William Hugh Knight character, his story is given the date of 1903, being that that's the date when Britain last invaded Tibet, and that's the Francis Young Husband expedition I mentioned earlier. So, yeah, you know, I told you that guy would be relevant. Shortly before the last Tibetan War, I was returning from Tibet with another European, a Tibetan guide, and our train of about 40 or 50 coolies. We were coming down the track which leads from Guantan to Sedonken. We wanted to go to Gangtok by the higher track, but Tenzin Wagdi, our guide, said the coolies would not face the leeches, so we had to take the lower track, which roughly follows the river. As we got near Gangtok, we had to climb the long ascent. My companion had gone on ahead with the coolies. I was about half a mile behind and half a mile below Gantok. I stopped to breathe my horse on an open clearing and dismounted, loosening the girths and watched the sun which was just about setting. While I was musing, I heard a slight sound and looking round, I saw some fifteen or twenty paces away a figure which I now suppose must have been one of the hairy men that the Everest expedition talk about and the Tibetans, according to them, call the Abominable Snowman. Speaking to the best of my recollection, he was a little under six feet high, almost stark naked in that bitter cold. It was the month of November. He was a kind of pale yellow all over, about the colour of a Chinaman, a shock of matted hair on his head, little hair on his face, highly splayed feet, and large, formidable hands. His muscular development in the arms, thighs, legs, back and chest was terrific. He had in his hand what seemed to be some form of primitive bow. He did not see me but stood there and I watched him for some five or six minutes. So far as I could make out, he was watching some man or beast far down the hillside. At the end of some five minutes, he started off at a run down the hill and I was impressed with the tremendous speed at which he travelled. So far as I can remember, I mentioned the matter in the Gurkha mess that night and to Claude White when I saw him at the residence next morning but my recollection is that they took it rather as a matter of course. The incident more or less passed out of my mind until I read about the tracks in the snow written of by members of the Mount Everest expedition. Okay, so that's the supposed uh, uh, Knight sighting. The William Hugh Knight is the name given. A couple of things here, folks. Number one, the fact that he... He mentions the locals call this creature the Abominable Snowman. That really allows us to tie this story to this is a post-1922 story. This name did not exist before Howard Bury's story took off in the newspapers. 
it, there's really no and, and it's a mistranslation so there's really no way that William Hugh Knight could have been you know in the Himalayas and heard that term given or used that term given um, by actual people in the Himalayas he could only have heard that from the newspapers because the name was invented so that's one strike against it but number two look at how he describes the, the what he sees it it doesn't sound much like an animal it sounds more like a a person it sounds like a lost race rather than a lost creature you know it's wearing clothing it uses a bow this is a very different take on on the on the abominable snowman that we think we know this is not even a cryptozoological thing this is just like like various wild man sightings that were popular around the world at this time before the concept of cryptozoology was really a thing people were more interested in lost races i suppose and that's how they tended to interpret stories like this so uh, who was this William Hugh Knight? Well, another clue is that the supposed British Royal Society's club that he's a member of uh, doesn't exist, though it kind of sounds like it might. It sounds like the kind of thing that would have existed at this time, but it's not a real club. Uh, there was no William Hugh Knight uh, affiliated with the 1903 British expedition to Tibet or um, really anywhere else at all, as far as we know. However, there was a real explorer and mountaineer named Knight, but he was William Henry Knight, and he was doing his mountaineering much, much earlier. He wrote a famous book about his adventures in 1863. So he was real, and he was well known. It seems like the Knight who uh, had this sighting was a creation of the newspaper writers. Perhaps they took the name from the older explorer to make it sound a little bit more legitimate? I, we really don't know. It's, it's a possibility. But from here on, uh, the story gets mixed up and, and what Howard Bury really wrote about and then what uh, the, the fictional knight supposedly saw tend to get mixed together more and more. It's very strange. So things get underway. March 1922, Scientific American uh, writes an article in which they mention William Hugh Knight but not Howard Bury at all. So the story by now has, you know, it's ditched the real-life beginnings of it, but it's it's uh, following through on the fictional story that came of it. And I, I owe this, I'm taking this again from Anomaly Info, which I do recommend you check out. They've done some great work on this. One change that happens at this point is the Scientific American article drops some of the elements that make it more like a wild man. They drop the I think they keep the bow, but they drop the clothing. They are careful about how they mention the hair. They don't mention that, you know, he's got these bare patches on his face and that he only has hair in certain places. They make him sound more like a gorilla. In fact, they actually use the word gorilla or gorilla-like to imply that this is more of an animal than a, a wild person. Now, later on in 1922, Howard Bury's book comes out. And so what he does is he rewrites slightly the notes that he wrote at the time so basically he's printing his his memoirs and his diary entries from the expedition so most of what we're reading here is the same thing that he wrote on the day where he saw the footprints uh, september 22nd 1921 but he's he's looking at it you know a year later after the newspaper reports have taken off and gone crazy and he does make reference to it so even though this is not on the day, it's it's been it's had an overpass, you might say. This might be the truest example we're going to get of what actually happened according to him. So this is the full story from the man himself, according to Colonel Charles Howard Bury. He says, On September twenty second, leaving Rayburn behind, Mallory, Bullock, Moore's Head, Wheeler, Wollaston, and myself 
started off to Lakpala camp. We left the 20,000 foot camp in 22 degrees of frost at 4 o'clock in the morning, accompanied by 26 coolies who were divided up into four parties, each of which was properly roped. It was a beautiful moonlit night and the mountains showed up nearly as brightly as in the daytime. We rapidly descended the 200 feet from our terrace to the glacier when we all roped up. Dawn overtook us on the broad, flat part of the glacier, the first beams of the sun falling on the summit of Mount Everest. We wended our way without much difficulty through the ice fall of the glacier, below some superbly fluted snow ridges that rose straight above us. Even at these heights we came across tracks in the snow. We were able to pick out tracks of hares and foxes, but one that at first looked like a human foot puzzled us considerably. Our coolies at once jumped to the conclusion that this must be the wild man of the snows, to which they gave the name of Mito Kangmi, the abominable snowman who interested the newspapers so much. On my return to civilized countries, I read with interest delightful accounts of the ways and customs of this wild man, whom we were supposed to have met. These tracks, which caused so much comment, were probably caused by a large loping grey wolf, which in the soft snow formed double tracks, rather like those of a barefoot man. Tibet, however, is not the only country where there exists a bogeyman. In Tibet he takes the form of a hairy man who lives in the snows, and little Tibetan children who are naughty and disobedient are frightened by wonderful fairy tales that are told about him. To escape from him, they must run down the hill, as then his long hair falls over his eyes, and he is unable to see them. Many other such tales have they with which to strike terror into the hearts of bad boys and girls. So there you have it, folks. That is the extent of what he supposedly saw on that day, pretty close to the time when it happened as well. Every other form that you hear of this is some form of extension upon this, based on crazy newspaper reports from shortly after the actual sighting itself. I like how he points out here that he, he's emphasizing that it's a, a mythical creature. You know, the idea that there's this particular trick you can do to escape from it. You run down a hill and his long hair falls over his eyes. Now that, what he's not mentioning here, and which was quite well known actually amongst mountaineers at the time, was the, the legend further states that that's how you deal with a male yeti. If it's a female yeti, you must run up the hill, because then their pendulous breasts uh, flap up into their eyes and they can't see you. I suppose that was not the sort of detail that a gentleman would put in a book in 1922. So the legend next sort of evolves in 1938. A man by the name of Stanley Snaith writes a book called At Grips with Everest. Now, according to Anomalies, uh, in Snaith's book, the story is once again retold, but the sighting is made out to be more animal-like than it was previously. The quote here is, A creature with the face of a mongoloid cast, splay-footed with the crouched shoulders and thick mane of a gorilla, leaping with marvellous sureness from rock to rock. It carried a primitive bow. The implication here, of course, is that it is uh, some, somewhere between a beast and an animal, as a, a human would use a bow, but would not be able to leap from rock to rock in this animal-like way. Great stuff. This is really important, folks, because the whole point of cryptozoology is looking for what appear to be real animals, you know, physical pelts and paws animals. They're 
at least at the beginning of most of these stories, there is a, a, a direct attempt to remove any element of the supernatural, of the mythical, or of the folkloric. Stories about Yetis having backwards-facing feet so that um, they, you know, they could fool you when you were following the tracks, and, and this stuff about the, the breasts and the, the eyes. That was taken out of a lot of these early stories because they didn't really add to the idea, the concept that this was a real physical animal that could be hunted. So it's interesting to see the transformation of these creatures from properly mythical godlike beings or spirit beings to um, like a lost race of people and then being transformed again into these cryptozoological physical entities. And again, it all depends on the, the interpretation. It depends on what's popular at the time, what kind of things are people looking for. This really kicks into gear in the mid-20th century. 50s and 60s is when the big changes happen. And, I mean, what people were looking for at that time, that was the end of the Age of Empire. That was the end of all of this going out into the world as a gentleman explorer and finding new places and new creatures. All of that was coming to an end, but the need for it was not. So people still needed to believe that there were places they could go to find mystery and adventure. And that's when these stories really take off. The birth of the modern cryptozoology movement is at this time. And one of the most important people involved in that was our old boy, Ivan T. Sanderson. Now, going, cutting back to the very beginning of the episode, I mentioned the, the Eric Shipton footprints. That was 1951. That's a huge deal. Suddenly we have a, an amazing visual of the creature. And guess what? Once again... The, the old version of Howard Bury's prints gets dusted off and taken out and starts doing the rounds again um, alongside the Shipton prints. So people start telling that story once again. And then this is probably the version that Ivan T. Sanderson polishes off and, you know, makes into a new version in 1961. And that's one we read earlier on. The only thing I'll say is that Sanderson kind of welds the two stories together. He takes night seeing the creature and he bolts that onto... The story of Howard Bury and the footprints. So then we get this story where Howard Bury sees mysterious creatures moving around and then later on gets closer and finds the footprints. And that's like the final form of this story. And, and that's the way it was kind of repeated from source to source by maybe a few people who didn't do a lot of primary uh, research themselves. And so to bring this story to a close, we must return to Howard Bury himself. Following his sighting of the footprints back in 1921, he returned to Ireland and to Britain, uh, a, rather a hero. He was given a reception by King George V at Buckingham Palace. His expedition was widely regarded as having been a success and was seen as something that would surely pave the way for British success on the slopes of Mount Everest in the future. Of course, one sad story is that it did pave the way for the disappearance and death of George Mallory just three years later. Um, as to the man himself, he went on to live in Belvedere Castle for the rest of his days. After his stint in politics, he retired there with the uh, rather much younger Shakespearean actor Rex Beaumont, who lived with him as a companion. I have no idea if there was anything going on there that would have been considered scandalous in the day. Of course, uh, a gentleman like himself probably just didn't speak about such things at the time. As well as Belvedere Castle, he also uh, kept a villa in Tunisia, where he was known to entertain the great and the good of that country. And till the end of his days, he was a big fan of throwing lavish parties and attending uh, rather famous Irish cultural events, such as the Rose of Tralee. 
a sort of beauty contest of which he was rather a large fan. He died in 1963. You've been listening to White Atlantic Weird, a podcast about why people believe weird things. I'm Kean, and thanks for joining me at the Cabin in the Woods for this episode. I gave some contact details right at the beginning, but you know what? As always, we're delighted to have stories from people. We're delighted to hear what you think of the episodes, and we'd love to have some ideas for future episodes as well. So once again, on Twitter, we are at Strange Ireland. On Instagram, we are White Atlantic Weird Podcast. Thanks for listening, and stay safe. We are certain that Satanism exists. It's the practice of evil. And following closely behind this car was this unidentified flying object. You will prove the existence of the Bigfoot or Sasquatch by bringing in a body.